Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 in your Bibles, please. Last week when we were together, we spent our time in Daniel chapters 10 through the beginning of chapter 11 talking about the second woe, the sixth trumpet of the seven trumpet judgment found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. As we step into the seventh trumpet, Daniel chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 and following, and then particularly as we get into chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, we're going to be seeing uh, quite a few different things happening. We're going to be introduced to some new people, to some new concepts, and we're going to really begin to see the links between the revelation of Jesus Christ and um, heavy Old Testament prophetic references. To that end, what I'm going to do today, what I would like to do today, is to take you back to the Old Testament, particularly into the book of Daniel. Now, we've already talked about just about everything that I'm going to talk about today in a manner of speaking. We've already gone to Daniel uh, in our early introduction. We already walked through various passages. We talked about the, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar uh, of, the, of the statue and, and then how that corresponded to the vision in Daniel 7 of the beast and the vision of Daniel 8 and then what those represented. We talked about uh, the time as it related to Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks and that 70 weeks meant 490 years and, and why we believe that to be the case and we even went to the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ to attempt to establish that to some degree that in fact the 70 weeks is 70 sets of years, which would be 490 years. So we've done all of that, and yet um, as we step into next week's topic, uh, we, we really do need to go back, and I need to show you this in Scripture. I need to open the Bible with you. We need to walk through these passages, and you need to see what we're talking about, not from the perspective like we did last time. Last time, the point, the perspective that we had was a perspective as it related to the kingdom, as it related to God's overarching plan. And that's what we spent time doing. We spent time talking about God's greater plan. This time we're going to follow the text where the text leads, which I kind of ignored in, in Daniel last time. I was using uh, the, the broader visions, but in these visions, as we see them unfold, particularly the visions of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, we, they both focus in on a particular person. They, like a funnel, they start wide uh, with the, the broader vision, what's going on, and then Daniel begins to ask questions, and it funnels down to a particular beast or a particular nation, and then funnels down into, uh, at the last, a particular man. And that's what we need to focus on today. We need to focus on a particular man, and then we're going to be connecting the dots over the next several weeks with this man, uh, with um, various other characters and actors as we see it play out. So as we begin, let's remember our context, particularly as it relates to the prophetic visions of Daniel. Uh, we began with an investigation of Daniel 2, 7, and 8, uh, and found in them a general interpretive consistency which gives us insight into the kingdoms of this world, and general cultural dominance leading up to the kingdom of Christ. We found through Daniel 2 that the kingdom of Rome would merge into a ten-kingdom confederacy of nations or cultures, some of which have their roots in the Western world, others which would not. 
That was the toes, some of clay and some of iron, having come from the feet of iron and clay, having come from the legs of iron, and that being the fourth kingdom. And we know, and we'll, we'll perhaps substantiate it more today, that that kingdom is Rome. Then we correlated this with our study of Daniel 7, where Daniel saw the same thing, but this time not from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, where each kingdom, starting with the head of gold, which was Babylon, as we recall, uh, where we see that... that uh, God showed that Nebuchadnezzar saw each kingdom as, as a precious metal, as beautiful, as, as this wonderful monument and statue. And God saw each of these kingdoms as some sort of beast, right? Not even a man, but an animal of a sort. So we correlated this with that study in Daniel 7. And particular attention was given, and we didn't focus on this last time, but particular attention was given to the fourth beast. And that's what we're going to consider today is that particular attention. We're going to also see a distinction between the fourth beast and, and a man that comes out of the fourth beast and then the third beast and the man that comes out of the third beast and why we need to make that distinction very clear. Then we compared this to Daniel 8 where we saw a vision of a ram and a goat and the goat destroys the ram. The focus being upon the notable horn of the goat which after destroying the ram was then broken and four horns uh, arose in its place and then out of that came a little horn uh, who boasted great things. We established through the interpretations given to Daniel that the head of gold and the lion with wings are indeed the Babylonian empire. Then the breast and the arms of silver the bear with one side higher than the other and three ribs in his mouth, and the ram with one horn greater than the other horn were the Medo-Persian Empire. And we'll see that in our text today. Then that the belly and the thighs of brass, the leopard with four heads and four wings, and the he-goat with the one notable horn is the Grecian Empire or the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And then that the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, and, and the toes of iron mixed, uh, some, some toes iron, some toes clay, uh, as well as the dreadful beast that Daniel sees in Daniel 7 with the ten horns and the notable eleventh horn are the Roman Empire that gives way to a confederacy of nations and it's during that time of the confederacy of nations, these ten nations, that then the kingdom of God, this stone cut without hands that hits the image at its feet and grinds the image to powder or in Daniel 7, the thrones that are cast down in the Ancient of Days arises and given, gives this judgment to the saints. Um, this is the kingdom of God that takes place or that comes into being at the end of this Roman world ten kingdom confederacy. And we made strong emphasis of the fact that we're not saying that the Roman Empire as it once existed, still exists, right? The, the point is not that, but the point is that we are still in the culture that arose from the Roman Empire. There was a Babylonian culture. That culture was uh, overrun and assimilated by the Medo-Persian culture. And then the Medo-Persian culture was overrun and assimilated by the Grecian culture. And then the Grecian culture was overrun and assimilated by the Roman culture. And the Roman culture has never actually been undone. It created the very foundation for what we now call the Western world. As you trace through Charlemagne, as you trace through Napoleon, as you trace through the British Empire, as you trace through uh, even the American dominance 
of you know, the dominance of the United States of America, uh, each one has been predicated upon a Western worldview, a Western culture that began in Rome. Rome was never conquered. It dissolved from within in the same way that we see uh, various other elements of the Western world dissolving from within through decadence and through apathy. We see that in Europe. We're starting to see it in the United States. We've, you can see it in Canada. And through decadence, through apathy, through immorality, through these sorts of things, uh, the, the culture, the high culture of Western civilization crumbles. It crumbles under the weight of a rejection of Judeo-Christian norms. And so we find that it, it's valid to say that we are still in Western culture, that we are still in that Roman period. And because of that, uh, there's nothing about this prophecy that has been undone. And, and if we take this prophecy at face value, which we always do here as best we can, then we would understand that the Western world will maintain a general dominance when as mixed with toes of clay, wh whatever that is, this this mixing of the strength of the Western world with something else, something weak, something that's clay, not iron, something that, that uh, has no business having any influence. Uh, perhaps this uh, has to do with the backwardness of Islam. Perhaps this has to do with um, the elevation of third world countries to a voice, to a world stage, uh, which we see today. Both of those things we see today uh, as we see Islam overrun Europe, as we see uh, crazy things like, like uh, the non existing country of Palestine or uh, the socialist, uh, um, d t just the, the, the terrible socialist uh, failure of Venezuela have some sort of voice on the world scene as if, as if their opinion should matter when they can't even uh, police themselves. So perhaps that's the iron mixed with clay. Uh, we don't really know. But one way or another, it will be in that time, the Western world, the remnants of the Western world empire will still exist at the time of the end. And, and we know this not only from the Daniel 2 prophecy, but even more particularly from Daniel 7. And we're going to see that today. So what we find as we follow the text, and what we are going to find today as we follow the text, we're going to read large portions of Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and then a portion of Daniel 11, and all for context. And as we do so, what we're going to find is that the focus is going to go in two primary areas. First, there's going to be a focus upon the fourth beast in Daniel 7, the ten horns, and particularly the eleventh horn that rises out of the ten horns. We're going to focus on that. And then second, there's going to be a focus upon the, the third beast, not the Roman Empire, but the Grecian Empire, and a horn that comes from, his, from that, that line. And through this, we'll gain a deeper understanding, a clearer picture of the end times events, and it will help us as we begin walking through Daniel or Revelation of Jesus Christ, 12, 13, 14, 15, to really understand better the context, understand better what's happening, and then understand better where to go with it. So we pick up in Daniel chapter 7. Yeah, I hope you're there, beginning in verse 2. And the Bible says this, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea, and the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Remember how we were talking in, in Revelation over the last couple of weeks, uh, various elements of why some people believe that the sea and the land, as it relates to prophecy, actually reflects 
um, the Gentile world as the sea, and then Israel or the promised land as the land. And once again, we see something here that would somewhat substantiate uh, that theory. We see here that there is a wind, the, the, the four winds, they strive, they blow upon the great sea, and then these beasts, these, these, these uh, beasts that, that John sees are going to come out of the sea. And we know that these four beasts represent four kingdoms and that they are not the kingdoms of God or of Israel, but that they are kingdoms of the Gentile world that will interact with Israel in some way, shape, or form. So once again, we see this picture of the sea and we see it in such a manner that it, it, it would make sense that we're talking about um, the, the, the sea being the Gentile world and perhaps the earth then being Israel or the things that pertain to Israel. I really have no problem at all with this interpretation. We've talked about it a little bit already and uh, where it might be valid, where it might not. We didn't really hit on that heavily. But, but as we continue walking through prophecy, you can perhaps see why this is. Uh, continuing then in verse 4. The first, that would be of these beasts, uh, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Uh, that gives, uh, well, well, we'll come to that in a minute. Let's keep reading. And behold, another beast, the second, like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and, a, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them a little horn out of the fourth beast, before whom there were three of the first horns of the ten plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking great things. I beheld till thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow and hair of his head like that of pure wool, like the pure wool, excuse me. His throne was like a fire, the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thou, thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times Times ten thousand stood before him, and the judgment was set, the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. And a time. So we have in this ver in these verses a vision of four beasts. And the first beast uh, was that lion with wings. But then he uh, he stood up as a man and got the heart of a man. This would be in reference, if you recall, to early in the book of Daniel. I believe it's Daniel four, Daniel five, um, where Nebuchadnezzar is looking over his kingdom. He proclaims his greatness that he is the greatest of all, and then he hears a voice from heaven saying that he would be as a beast, that he would eat the grass of the field until such time as he recognized that God is the Most High God. And so Nebuchadnezzar did for some time uh, think he was a beast. He went mad. 
And he ate the grass of the field, and his hair grew, and his, his nails grew, until such time as he acknowledged God to be the God of all flesh, at which point he was restored to his kingdom. And that is that idea of the uh, lion receiving the heart of a man and standing like a man, because this man the, who led this great kingdom of Babylon actually did come to the point where he acknowledged God to be who he is, and thus uh, <laughs> the status of the kingdom elevated from beast status to the value of man, as it were, uh, in this vision. We continue through the various beasts as we talked about. And in regard to the fourth beast, we find that this beast was a beast that, that uh, Daniel could not describe. He had a reference point for all of the others. He had no reference point for this one as far as the beasts of the earth. And he says that this beast, having all of these iron teeth and whatnot, had ten horns. And then there was an eleventh horn. And the Bible says that when this eleventh horn arose, it plucked up three of the first ten horns. And then this eleventh horn had eyes, indicating knowledge, the ability to see, the, the capacity to understand these the generally spiritual things is the idea of having eyes in prophecy. He had a mouth speaking great things. He exerted influence. We'll see that, in fact, this is blasphemy that he'll, he will speak. We find this is the final record before God arrives on the scene and slays the fourth beast, taking dominion away from all of the beasts, but allowing all of the ones except for the fourth beast to remain for a time. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means as we continue. Uh, but we do know this, uh, that uh, the, uh, uh, well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire prior to the millennial kingdom, whereas everyone else is not populating the lake of fire until after the millennial kingdom and then the great white throne of judgment. So we'll, we'll see a couple of those uh, links as we continue. So Daniel sees this vision and he's deeply troubled. He is told that these great beasts are four kingdoms that arise. And then at the end of these four kingdoms, the Ancient of Days will give dominion to the saints of the Most High who will possess these kingdoms forever. We pick up then in our context, we read through verse 12. Let's pick up in verse 19 of Daniel 7 as we continue reading. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse, different from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given unto the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. So Daniel is particularly curious as he sees this vision. He is particularly curious about this fourth beast, this dreadful beast, and rightfully so by his description. This also helps us as readers as we follow the emphasis that God is placing on the text. Daniel is curious, and that curiosity is leading us to what God desires to emphasize. So Daniel says this fourth beast is indeed unlike any others. He is so dreadful. He is so powerful. Daniel considers again the horns. 
Horns are, are a symbol and prophecy of power and dominion. We'll find in just a moment in the interpretation that these horns are kings. They are kings. And there were ten horns that were there on this great beast. And then an eleventh horn rises, and as we've mentioned already, he, as he rises, he tears up three of the other horns. They are plucked up. Three of the ten kings are plucked up with the rise of the eleventh. He describes this eleventh horn as speaking great things, that he was more powerful, more stout, the Bible says in verse 20, than the other ten. And this eleventh horn destroys three out of the ten horn, other horns. And this eleventh horn, the Bible says, made war with the saints, the followers of God, and prevailed against the saints until such time as God steps in and saves the saints. And so what we're looking for is a time when there will be a, a, a king and this king will arise and he will uproot other kings and he will come out of this, this Western world empire and he will be a man speaking great things and he'll have spiritual knowledge and we're looking for a man who makes war against the people of God and prevails against them for a time until God has to step in and rescue them. I hope this is already sounding a little bit familiar to you. It should be because we've already read Matthew 24. We've already read uh, and anticipated God uh, stepping in at the end of the end times and delivering his people. And that's really where we're going here. Daniel learns that this fourth beast, which we know to have originated in the days of Ro Rome, the Western world empire will devour the whole earth and claim dominance over the whole world. We keep reading then in Daniel 7, verses 24 and 25, and this will be it for Daniel 7. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High. So these great words are words of blasphemy. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and a times and a dividing of time. So this eleventh horn, the Bible says, would be different from the other ten horns. That he would uproot three or subdue three of the ten kings. Subdue is, is the word used here. Um, not that he would destroy them as much as he would bring them completely under his authority and power. This eleventh horn will speak great words against God. And we do find here that these, these horns are kings, right? They are representing kings. He will, this eleventh horn, this eleventh leader, wear out the saints through persecution. He will seek to change the natural order of things, times and laws, revising history, trying to change the, the natural design of things. And we would understand that the natural design of things would most likely have to do with, as we see other elements of end times prophecy, uh, God's order of things, that God has a design, right? And that God has designed life a certain way. He's designed marriage a certain way. He's designed people a certain way. And as people get farther and farther from God and more angry and angry against God, they seek to change those things. They seek to undo God's design. They reject God's design, which is why family is being rejected today, which is why marriage is being rejected today, which is why even gender is being rejected today. Because in each of these things, there is a element, a mark, a clear mark of design, of God's design. The way God God intends it to be. And so as people get farther from God, they cast that off. This man will be a man who speaks terrible words against God, persecutes God's followers, and wants to change the natural order of things. 
And the Bible says that he would have power on earth, particularly, of course, in our context, we're related to his power over the saints of the Most High, for a time, a times, and a dividing of time. Three and a half. A time is one. Times, plural, is two. That's three total. And then a dividing of time, that's one half. Three and one half times. Now remember back to when we studied this. We took this concept and we compared the time, times, and half a time of Daniel, right here in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 9, and then we compared that to Revelation of Jesus Christ and found, as we'll see next week in Revelation 12, that the time, times, and half a time, three and a half times, is actually three and a half years. And this corresponds to what we find in Daniel 9 about the 70 times 7, 490 weeks, or 70 weeks, excuse me, 490 years. And so as we look into Daniel 7 and we see this notable horn, this horn will have power over the saints for three and a half times, which we believe to be three and a half years. And that three and a half year mark is an important mark. We've talked about the 70th week of Daniel. And as we go to Daniel 9, we're going to see that the 70th week is divided in half. Three and a half years on one side, three and a half years on the other side. And that there's going to be this prince that shall come who will have power, who will, will, will make a covenant with Israel and then break it at the middle of the week at the three and a half year mark. So this three and a half number is very prophetically important. And this should cause us to perk our ears. Now we haven't put all the pieces together yet. We haven't taken all the puzzle pieces and clipped them in, but we've got the edges now, and we're working our way in, and it's beginning, we're starting to see a picture, right? We're beginning to see what's going on here. I hope you're beginning to see what's going on here as you see this. So this is a horn, and this horn is a king, and this king will uproot other kings, and he will blaspheme God, and he will seek to change times and seasons, and he will have a particular amount of power that the saints of the Most High will be given into his hand for three and a half times for three and a half years. For those of you who have both heard and followed along with the teaching throughout you should recognize thus that this notable horn that, that is able to have power over the saints of the Most High is the man who is called in Daniel 9 the prince that shall come. The man that we often refer to as Antichrist. You should be thinking of this. You should be thinking of 2 Thessalonians and the description of the man of sin. When uh, we'll, we'll go there in just a moment. But when the Bible says that he seeks to change times and seasons, uh, that, that should cause you to think about the man of sin of Second Thessalonians. That should cause you to think about Paul's warnings about the last days uh, where people are forbidding to marry, where people are forbidding to eat meat, where, where in the last days these, these, um, these uh, difficult, evil times will come. You should be thinking about the time of the Great Tribulation as Jesus taught it in Matthew 24. Great Tribulation after the abomination of desolation such as the world has never seen and shortened only for the sake of the elect. And you should understand this 11th horn thus to be Antichrist. This brings us to Daniel 8 where the focus shifts. And do... Put kind of a if you can if you can manage put a wall in your mind here 
We are now shifting focus from the fourth kingdom, Rome, and Antichrist, as we've talked about him thus far, to the third kingdom, Greece, and some history, some stuff that's already behind us in history. So make that shift in your mind. Uh, put, a, put a line here in, in, in your, your mental notes or in your physical notes, if need be. And now we're going back in time. Now we're talking history, beginning in Daniel 8. Verses 3 through 14, the Bible says this, Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beasts might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, and he goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of... One of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. That would be Israel. And it waxed great even to the hosts of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So we read in this passage of two kingdoms. The first of a ram with two different sized horns, one higher than the other. This corresponds to the bear with uh, one side higher than another and three ribs in his mouth, which of course corresponds as well to um, the chest and the arms of silver. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And we'll see that, that interpretation given in the text. You'll see it in just a few minutes. And this ram was strong and was great and devoured everything or destroyed everything until such time as a goat comes along. And this goat has a very notable, one single notable horn on his head. And he goes and he destroys the ram. And then this great horn on the head after destroying the ram was broken and four horns uh, arise in its place and they go toward the four winds, toward north, south, east, and west. And then when those four horns uh, uh, arise out of those four horns comes a little horn, he's called in verse 8, which waxes exceeding great. So he remains a little horn, but he's a, he's, he's a little horn that, that's feisty. Um, he's a little horn that has some power to him. And the Bible says that this little horn magnified himself. He certainly saw himself as greater than he was. And he took away the daily sacrifice from the temple. 
This sacrifice was taken away for 2,300 days or approximately 6.3 years or 6 and one third years. So take note of the time here. Take note of what's happening here. There is a removal of the daily sacrifice. This is not called the abomination of desolation. This is called the transgression of desolation here. And this transgression of desolation takes place where this little horn that comes out of the third kingdom, not the fourth, but the third kingdom overthrows the temple and makes it desolate for six and one-third years. Keep note of all of that. Remember, we're talking history here. We're not talking future. It was future at the time Daniel wrote it, but it's not future to us. We continue reading then in chapter 8, skipping a few verses for time. Verse 20, the Bible says this. This is the interpretation. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. So there it is. The ram, two horns, Medo-Persian Empire. And the rough goat is the, is the king of Grecia or, or Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The first king of the great Grecian Empire was Alexander the Great. Now, Greece existed before that, but it was not an empire until Alexander the Great. Now, that being broken, that would be the great horn being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, take note of that designation, in the latter time of the, the, the kingdom, so the kingdom is established, the, the, king, uh, the kingdoms, are, are bro- it's broken into four, they all have the Grecian world, the, the, the Grecian um, culture, they are all, Um, Grecian culture but they are four separate kingdoms and at the end of this Grecian culture age at the latter end of this verse 23 when the transgressors are come to the full a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up and his power shall be mighty but not by his own power and he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and holy people and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. So we find in this the interpretation, right? Ram is Medo-Persia. The goat is Greece. In the days of Greece, there will be a notable horn. That's Alexander the Great. He'll be broken. His kingdom will be divided into four smaller kingdoms, uh, though they'll maintain the Grecian culture that happened. Uh, There were four kingdoms that were given to the four generals of, of, of Alexander the Great. One went into the region of Babylon. One went into the region of Syria. One stayed over in the area of Greece. And then one went down to Egypt. And they each had their own kingdom. As the Bible continues in Daniel to chapter 10 and 11, it focuses in on the two kingdoms, Syria and Egypt, the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic Empire. Seleucid Empire in Syria and the Ptolemaic Empire in Greece. You say, Pastor, I don't understand any of this. Well, I've preached several messages on it, so go back and listen to those if you'd like at the beginning of this series. I've also taught on it on Tuesday night. Uh, I have not recorded that teaching yet, but I've taught on it on a Tuesday night. So those of you that were here probably are following along. Also, you can just read a Wikipedia page. Just go read the page on Alexander the Great. Everything that that the Bible's talking about happened in history. You can just read about it. 
Read about Alexander the Great. Read about him dying. Read about his generals receiving the empire. Read about the wars between the Seleucids and the, the, the Antiochus line and the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic line. Uh, um, you can read, you know, just, just, just pick up a history book and you can get all this and then, go to the, and then go to the scriptures and marvel. Then just go to the scriptures and marvel that Daniel, hundreds and hundreds of years before any of this would take place, wrote it all down by the wisdom of God. And that leads to Daniel 9, Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks of Israel. We've already taught on this somewhat substantially, but let me read it again to remind us here. Daniel 9, beginning verse 27, we'll read through 20, excuse me, beginning verse 24, we'll read through verse 27. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. A score is twenty, three score is sixty, three score and two is sixty-two, sixty-two plus seven, sixty-nine weeks from the command to rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince. And after three score and two weeks, after that, that 62 weeks, which comes after the seven weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, killed, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So we've already interpreted this. The 70 weeks of Daniel stand for 490 years of history that is left God dealing with the nation of Israel. And the Bible says that clearly. The first six, now not everyone interprets it that way, but that's what the Bible says. The first 69 of those weeks are traceable in history from the command to rebuild Jerusalem, which happened in the days of Cyrus, to the coming of Messiah the Prince. 69 weeks, 69 weeks, 483 years, 69 sets of seven, 483 years between those two. And generally speaking, that is the timetable. Uh, there's debate about exactly when the command went forth to rebuild Jerusalem and exactly when Messiah the Prince came. Did Messiah the Prince come at the day of his birth? Did Messiah the Prince come at the day of his baptism? Did Messiah the Prince come at the day of his triumphal entry? Uh, that's up for debate. And of course, there's some 30-something years of wiggle room on that end and there's year, wiggle room on the other end. But it is close enough to say, simply put, that our faith can make up the difference, that this is a very accurate prophecy uh, with us not knowing the essential dates from one to the other. Uh, as I mentioned, some people believe it's his birth. Uh, some even believe it's his transfiguration. Some believe it's his baptism. Some believe. Um, and so all of those are a possibility, and though all those things change the timeline a little bit. But we see this, right? We see this in history. After the 69th week, the Bible says Messiah would be cut off. So sometime after the 483 years, between when the, the call to rebuild Jerusalem goes forth and when Messiah comes, uh, uh, um, sometime after 
after that, of course, Messiah is killed, and we know that that happened. And then after that, the Bible says that the people of the prince that shall come would destroy the city and the temple. What prince that shall come? This is not Messiah the prince. This is a different prince. This is the prince that is going to make a covenant with Israel. This is the prince that is going to perform the abomination of desolation. So the Bible says that the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the temple. As if we didn't already know that the fourth beast was Rome, as if we didn't already know that the legs of iron were Rome, here we find another link. The people that destroyed the temple, it was destroyed in 70 AD, and the people that did that were the people of Rome. It was the Roman Empire. And so this people are the, it's the Roman Empire. It's, it's the people of the Western world. They destroyed the city in 70 AD, a city which, uh, a temple which has never been rebuilt since it was destroyed in 70 AD. And so we know that we're speaking about Rome here, right? And then the Bible says that this prince that shall come comes from that people, which means he comes out of the Western world. This is how we know that this prince, who we call Antichrist, will be out of the Western world. He'll be out of Western culture. That doesn't say anything about his ethnicity or, or, or anything of the sort. It just simply means that he is going to come out of the Western, out of Western civilization or out of the Western empire as it forms in the future, however it forms. And this would make perfect sense to us and link us closer between this prince that shall come and the notable 11th horn that came out of the fourth beast that is Rome, right? So now we're starting to wonder if these are the same person. And this leads us to this understanding. The prince that shall come will make a covenant with Israel then we'll break that covenant with Israel. We'll cause sacrifices to cease. We'll overspread his abominations and make desolate until the end. Now remember, the notable 11th horn had power over the, over the saints of the Most High until the end. And he was given power for three and a half years. This prince that shall come at the three and a half year mark of the 70th week will perform the abomination of desolation, at which point there will be three and a half years left until God comes. Do you see the merging? Do you see the fact that this 11th horn is the prince that shall come? Do you see the fact that the three and a half years where this prince that shall come, this 11th, where the 11th horn is allowed to make war with and prevail against the saints of the Most High will be initiated by the abomination of desolation. Is there some interpretive measures there? There are. But this seems very clear to me. That midway through the week, the prince that shall come will perform the abomination of desolation, which will initiate three and a half years of war against the saints of the Most High, leading up to Messiah's coming, leading up to God reclaiming His kingdom. And this is important. And one of the reasons why this is important is because in Daniel 8, remember, there was a horn who performed a similar thing, causing sacrifices to cease. And he would have power to cause the sacrifices to cease for a different amount of time, right? Not three and a half years, 1,260 days, but rather 
2,300 years, almost double the time. Not three and a half years, but six and one-third years. And we already had this big question mark as to how could that be when we see all these other prophecies of three and a half years. But then remember, as we said already, that this little horn that was able to perform this uh, um, this um, um, transgression of desolation for 2,300 days does not come out of the fourth kingdom. Does not come out of Rome. He came out of the third kingdom. Out of the Grecian kingdom, which is already in history, given way to the Roman Empire, the Western world, which is what we're in now. So remember that. Who is this man then? This little horn from history. This is a man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he did everything that the Bible says he would do. As a matter of fact, Daniel 10 and Daniel 11 traces the history all the way to this man. Why even teach on him this morning then? Why not just skip Daniel 8 altogether? He has nothing to do with the end times. Because we're about to step into another prophetic section in Daniel 11. And in Daniel 11, things get a little tricky because in Daniel 11, what we find is this. In Daniel 11, the, the text will begin talking about the historical reality of this man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And then at a certain point, they're going to begin to talk about this abomination of desolation that takes place. The transgression of desolation, as it's mentioned in Daniel 8, where Antiochus Epiphanes causes the oblation, causes the sacrifices to cease. And at that point, we're going to see emerging. There's going to be a historical account of Antiochus Epiphanes until the point of the abomination of desolation, at which point we're not only talking about history with Antiochus, but we're also talking about the future with the man that we know as Antichrist. And then for several verses, we're going to see that these verses apply to both of these men, and then Antiochus is going to break off, and, and the verses that will come no longer apply to him at all, and then we're just going to be picking up with Antichrist. And if you're not careful, you're not going to see the transition. The transition is marked, but you're not going to see it. And we need to see it because we need to know what's going to happen in the future. We need to know how, is, how it relates to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we need to see where that point of merging happens. And then at the point where Antiochus Epiphanes breaks off, where history stops and, and future history and, um, and prophecy uh, yet begins. Now, remember, at the time of Daniel's writing, it was all prophecy. But as we've talked about, prophecies can run one uh, contiguously, but actually have large gaps between them, between their fulfillments. We're going to see another one of those coming up here. So we know from Daniel 7 that this notable horn of the fourth beast was allowed to persecute the saints for three and a half years. We know from Daniel 9 that three and a half years into the 70th week of Daniel, the prince that shall come will break his covenant with Israel and, uh, and desolate their temple. To this end, we put some simple interpretive methods to use to come to a fairly confident conclusion that the 11th horn of Daniel 7 is the prince that shall come of Daniel 9, and that the prince that shall come is then the one who will assert himself over this 10-kingdom confederacy where some are strong like iron, some are weak like clay, and he will pluck out and subdue three of those 10 kings. We're talking about the same guy, the same guy in Daniel 7 as Daniel 9. I hope that makes sense to you. I hope I'm being clear here. And if I am, I hope it excites you. I mentioned that puzzle thing earlier. Isn't it exciting when a puzzle starts to come together when you've worked hard on it? 
Isn't it exciting once you've gotten through, okay, you do this, the edge pieces and, and, and you get that done and then some person who, who has uh, some enjoyment for misery uh, starts working on the sky, right, and, and the clouds because there's no distinguishing features and it's just really frustrating and difficult. And, and then you get that and you're like, okay, finally. And then you can start to work on the part that actually makes sense and that actually has distinction. And, and then as you're putting it together, it starts to look like something, and that's exciting. And, and, and now you can see it starting to take shape. I hope you're feeling that excitement. Maybe you don't get excited at puzzles, in which case maybe you're not feeling that excitement. But one way or another, I hope you're, you're starting to say, ah, this is making sense. I hope those tumblers are starting to click into place here. The, the puzzle pieces are starting to find their place. As you say, this makes sense. Okay, so now we're looking at these things. And, and, and the, the, the horn of Daniel 7 is the man in Daniel 9. And then next week as we talk in Daniel 12 about uh, the great dragon and, and his ten horns and, and these sorts of things and, and the power that he has and, and how long he has this power and all of these things. We're going to put together some more elements that will help you see how timing is just too similar to just be convenient. God is showing us something here. And it is these things that God is showing us through these timetables and through these the, the, these uh, markers that help us understand where we stand as it relates to prophecy. I've told you several times about various elements of, of when is the midpoint of the tribulation and when is the rapture and these sorts of things. That In a manner of speaking, I don't care because uh, all of it is in, in a manner of speaking a moot point and, and, and that, that there are verses to substantiate either one. But this, the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. And when you put it all together, I still do stand very confidently, very firmly, and very unapologetically upon our general interpretive framework. Why? Because it just makes too much sense. Just makes too much sense. So, we've read about a man, a horn, that will make war against the saints of the Most High for three and a half years. We've read about this horn who will uh, do terrible, terrible things, who will try to change times and seasons, who will blaspheme God. And we've read and, and correlated this horn to this man in Daniel 9 who performs this thing called the abomination of desolation that is yet future. Now link that with me to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 15 through 22. The Bible says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Understand what? Understand that Jesus is speaking future. See, because at this point, when, De when Jesus says these words, everyone thinks that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel is Antiochus Epiphanes. And Jesus says, nope, wrong. The abomination of desolation has not yet happened. Antiochus Epiphanes is a type. He's a type of Antichrist. He's a type of the, the prince that shall come, but he's not him. The, the abomination of desolation has not yet taken place. That's why it says there, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Verse 16. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not, since since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall 
be shortened. So Jesus warns about this man who will perform the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet, right? And that this warning is yet future. Now we have linked this. We have linked this to the midpoint of the tribulation and we've linked this to the, to the 11th horn in Daniel 7, to the blasphemy, to the evil, to the changing of times and seasons, to the warring with the saints of the Most High, to the, the um, prevailing against the saints of the Most High until such time as God rescues them. Now, let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we read this in verses 3 and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Paul says that this, there, there is this one that is yet to come. He's called the man of sin. He's called the son of perdition or destruction who exalts himself against God, who worships himself, really, who sits on the throne and calls himself God. This must be the 11th horn. This must be the prince that shall come. And so we have all of these names for him. The prince that shall come. The 11th horn. The man of sin. The son of perdition. Go on in 2 Thessalonians to call him that wicked and these are, in fact, the prophetic titles for him. Interestingly enough, there is not really a strong prophetic link between this man and the term Antichrist. The term Antichrist is found in only two books of the Bible, that being first and second, John. The word is used five times in those two books, and only maybe two of those times does John use it actually to describe someone in, a, in, in the way to identify someone rather than to identify something? The other times, he is speaking of a spirit of Antichrist. And really, probably four out of five times we could say that. Consider the two where John is using some sort of identifying marker. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and 1 John 4, 3. 2.18, it says, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are, are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So John says that Antichrist is coming. You've heard that, but there are actually many. And, and, and he goes on to explain that the spirit of Antichrist is already alive and well in the world, and certainly we know that Already, But here, John seems to speak of an anticipated antichrist. And then in John, 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. So this is not even so much speaking of a man, as it is speaking of a spirit that will come, a spirit of antichrist, um, which then is already operating in the world, as John says. Both of these could be interpreted as, however, identifying one that would come. But this is the only place where we really get this name. He is called otherwise the man of sin, the, the son of perdition, that wicked, uh, and the prince that shall come in the eleventh horn, the notable horn. We'll see as we continue in Revelation, he is also called the beast. Back to Daniel. 
we find that in Daniel chapters 10 and 11, the primary focus is upon the history of Israel as far as we have it now. It was, of course, prophecy then. Now it's history. During the time of the Grecian Empire, during the time of this Seleucid and Ptolemaic war back and forth, the days from Medo-Persia into Greece. This portion of Scripture is remarkably accurate to history. You can open a history book, you can open Daniel 10 and 11, and you can walk down them and, and just parallel them one-to-one. It's incredible. If you've never taken that class through me, when, next time I teach it, I really encourage you to be a part of it. And then, as I mentioned before, there's a point of transition. So I'm going to begin reading in Daniel 8, beginning in verse 28. And as I do so, uh, we're going to start with Antiochus Epiphanes. And then I'm going to show you where we begin to merge and then where Antiochus falls off. So we read this beginning in Daniel 11, verse 28. Then shall he return into his land with great riches. This is Antiochus. And his heart, this is the, the little horn of Daniel 8. And his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For the ships of Shittim, that would be Rome, shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant, Israel. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant, Jews that have forsaken the covenant, and arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, that would be the, te- te- uh, the temple, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So there will be an abomination of desolation during the time of the third kingdom. This is the little horn who has power over the, the temple for 2,300 days. And such shall do wickedly against the covenant, uh, shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Remember, I mentioned that it is at the point of the abomination of desolation that we are seeing emerging between Antiochus Epiphanes and the man of sin, the son of perdition, that we call Antichrist. Whereas the uh, the the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, has power for those 2,300 days. We know that Antichrist will only have power over that sanctuary for 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years. The horn, the notable horn, the 11th horn, has power to fight the saints of the Most High following the the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, that three and a half year point, for a time, times, and half a time, or 3.5 times, three and a half Years. Continue in verse 33. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and by spoil many days. Persecution for many days, both times, right? Both with Antiochus and with Antichrist. Now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. So now we're starting to see these indicators as we transition farther away from Antiochus and farther toward uh, uh, Antichrist, these things about the time of the end, about there being a purging, about men being made righteous, being made white. 
So Antiochus did in fact have Rome stand up against him. He was angry. He spoiled the, the city. He destroyed many people. He started persecuting Israel. Uh, this is where the civil war began, where the, the Maccabee family stood up and uh, started this kind of guerrilla warfare campaign to overthrow Syria and ended up doing so and then uh, re-consecrating the temple of God at the end of that period. Uh, it is, that is actually the basis for the holiday of Hanukkah. It's a remembrance of the Maccabees when they were able to reconsecrate, to, to uh, uh, get, reinitiate the sacrifices in Israel at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. We see people dying in persecution. And we know that this is going to happen again, that this did happen in history. Now we're really going to begin to see this transition take a, a very strong move forward beginning in verse 36 of Daniel 11. The Bible says this, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And at the time of the end, notice this marker, shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships and he shall enter into the, into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. And at that time, Michael, and at that time, Michael, at that time, um, hang on, I think the overhead here, which I'm reading off of, might have lost a word. And at that time shall, yes, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we read here about some interesting things. First, as we see this merging still happening, right? The abomination of desolation, that's going to happen twice. It happened with Antiochus. It will happen with Antichrist. And we see this merging of character. Um, the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was a very proud man. He was a man who exalted himself. Uh, he... he however, did worship the Greek god. So he did not necessarily worship unknown gods or anything of the sort. And so there's a little bit of a, we're already starting to see a little bit of a, of a failure at this point to identify with Antiochus Epiphanes. However, what do we know about the notable 
eleventh uh, horn in Daniel seven. We know that he will be a man that that will blaspheme God, that will seek to change the times and the seasons, that will seek to change the natural order of things. What do we know from Second Thessalonians chapter two? That the man of sin will be a man who will seek to place himself in the temple of God and declare himself to be. God. He's going to be a man of, uh, of, of spiritual uh, distinction. He's going to be a man of, of, of power. He's going to be a man uh, who uh, is able to, to uh, claim deity and believe it for himself in a very real way. And so we see this happening. We also um, ha- had talked about him changing the times and the seasons. And we talked about in the last days when these per- perilous times shall come, there will be a f- forbidding of marriage. And then we see here as it relates to this man that he will not love women, that he will uh, reject women. And so it, it might very well be that these go hand in hand, that in, in, in this way, uh, he is a man, perhaps he's a sodomite or or um, perhaps he just uh, hates the design of, of, of God in marriage and whatever the case may be, we see that he is going to be very forcefully against the nature of things. He will be a, an abomination of nature in, in a manner of speaking. We also find him to be a conqueror in Daniel 11 and 12, just as we saw with the 11th horn in Daniel 7. More importantly, beginning at verse 40, we see military events that did not happen in the life of Antiochus. At verse 40, the break-off is complete. There are things that are happening militarily, beginning in verse 40 of Daniel 11, that simply have not happened in history to this point. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of the north at the time of um, his reign. He was the Syrian king. He was the king of the north. And yet we find, as we get to verse 40, that a king of the north will... will um, push against him and a, a king of the south, excuse me, shall push against him and the king of the north will come against him like a whirlwind. And we simply do not see this as it relates to Antiochus. At this point, Antiochus is gone. He has completely broken off from the prophecy and now we are on to Antichrist and there's a gap, of course, in between in this type-antitype relationship. The kings of the north and east will trouble him. He will ride in fury to destroy. He'll come into the pleasant land. All of these things. Uh, We'll talk more about these things when we get to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to study Ezekiel 38, 39, 40. And as we do so, we're going to see um, some elements of the the king of the north. We're going to talk about uh, a man named Gog of Magog and his potential role in end times things. And we'll start talking about all of that together. And notice here that as it talks about this man and his fury and his evil, it leads right up to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where Michael shall stand up for his people. Michael is uh, regularly and, and really always in the scripture associated with, with Israel, with protecting Israel. Michael will stand up for his people, for the people of Israel, in a time of trouble. And there will be a time of trouble such as never was. Um, and we're starting to see keys, right? Time of trouble such as never was. Jesus calls it a great tribulation like the world has never seen in Matthew 24, which takes place after the abomination of desolation, Right? Right before Jesus comes again. Right before God claims his kingdom. What do we know about the the notable horn of Daniel 11? That he's going to have three and a half years of power over the saints of the Most High until God comes and gives the kingdom to his saints. 
What do we know from Daniel chapter 9? That the princess shall come. We'll do the abomination of desolation and then we'll have another three and a half times, another three and a half years before the end of the 70th week, at which point transgression is finished, all of the things are finished, um, and, and God comes for His people. This is the stone that hits the bottom of the statue. This is the Ancient of Days coming and stripping authority from the beasts, from the kingdoms. It's all, it all lines up. It's all the same thing. We're talking about Antichrist here. And what we see is that he is going to be allowed to dominate the last three and a half years of, the, of Daniel's 70th week. The timetables are too contiguous. There's too much correspondence for this to just be coincidence. And if it is, I, I, don't, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Now, all of this is intended to lay a foundation for what we're going to consider over the next several weeks. And I hope it will really help you as we dig into Revelation 12, Revelation 13, Revelation 14, Revelation 15 to see uh, how some of these things relate to each other and to, to get kind of a, a beginning introduction to the man that we call Antichrist, the prince that shall come, the notable 11th horn, the uh, man of sin, the son of perdition, that wicked. And this leads us to a simple reminder as we close. Remember, if, you, if you're going to take something with you other than all of the intellectual stimulation of the day, I, I, I really dislike just intellectually stimulating you, but sometimes it's just the way it is. Remember this. The Bible is a unified book. The God of the New Testament is the same God as the Old Testament. The New Testament cannot be understood apart from Old Testament context. The Old Testament cannot be understood apart from New Testament revelation. The whole Bible is important. I hope you see that today. I hope you see that God placed the key to unlocking the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Daniel. If you don't have Daniel, you don't understand Revelation. If you don't have Revelation, you don't understand Daniel. I hope you see that we must study both New Testament and Old Testament. I hope you understand that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament and that He has not changed. He is still righteous. He is still merciful. He is still holy. He still hates sin. He still loves the lost. And if you want to understand the God that you serve, you need to understand it through both Testaments. If you want to understand the New Testament, you need to understand the Old Testament. Only as we regard the whole counsel of God only as we respect the Old Testament as a commentary to the New Testament and the New Testament as a commentary to the Old Testament as God designed it to be, can we understand what God is attempting to tell us in its fullness. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net. 